Ready for a gut check? Stick around. Let's talk about it. Houston, we have a problem. Habemus papan. Podcasting from a parking lot in the Woodlands, Texas, it's the Catholic Hack with Joe McLean. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. The Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Do this in memory of Welcome back to the Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean. This is episode number 44. And today we're going to kick off a series with Tarek Saab about his new book, Gut Check. This is a great book. And I've talked about this book uh, a few times on this podcast. And as you'll recall, Tarek has been a guest on this podcast previously. And uh, I'm a big fan of his and, and the work that he is doing. And I cannot wait to share this book with you. Uh, I did get to read the book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, so I highly recommend it, and I've been pretty excited about this opportunity. Uh, How have you guys been? I have been so pounded lately. I've been sick. I came down with the flu. My kids got the flu. Now I've got this chest thing going on. I cannot stop coughing. Just got back from the conference in Corpus Christi, Texas with Fullness of Truth, and I don't think I slept a wink the entire weekend. It was so exhausting. But it was also a really, really great, great conference. We had Patrick Madrid. We had uh, Tony Melendez. John Marnoni was there. Dr. Ray Garendi was there. Michael Kumbi, Chris O'Bear. I mean, the, it was a great conference. I think a lot of people in, thoroughly enjoyed this conference. I got to tell you, uh, really quickly, uh, I was blessed with a wonderful opportunity to sit and talk with Dr. Ray for an hour by myself at at this restaurant in the top of the hotel. It was a real, real blessing. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Dr. Ray was fantastic. We got to uh, have a conversation about uh, uh, my my um, adopted son. And uh, see, Dr. Ray has 10 adopted kids, so he, he pretty much knows what he's doing when it comes to that. And it was a wonderful chance of a lifetime opportunity to sit and talk with Dr. Ray. And I just really, really enjoyed that. But the last few days, the last week have just been so rough. You know, I've been meaning to get this podcast, this series of podcasts out with uh, Tarek Saab now for over two weeks. I just couldn't get it done. I mean, it seems like I had no free time. I've been going back and forth between two jobs. I've been getting sick, and it's just been so tough. So I'm very pleased tonight to bring to you the first in this series with Tarek Saab. But before we do that, we've got to break the bread with Dr. Scott Hahn. We've got to continue on our Lenten journey through the the Sunday readings. So let's break the bread with Dr. Hahn. We've all sung the hymn, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So it should be easy for us to see ourselves as the blind man in this week's gospel. 
Our blindness, though, may be spiritual. In this week's readings, Jesus seeks to open our eyes. Find out more next on Breaking the Bread. God's ways of seeing are not our ways, we hear in this week's first reading. Jesus illustrates this in the gospel, as the blind man comes to see and the Pharisees are made blind. The blind man stands, of course, for all humanity. He has made a new creation through the saving power of Christ. As God fashioned the first man from the clay of the earth, so Jesus gives the blind man new life by anointing his eyes with clay. As God breathed the spirit of life into the first man, the blind man is not healed until he washes in the pool of Siloam, a name that means sent. Jesus is the one sent by the Father to do his will. He is the new source of life-giving water, the Holy Spirit who comes upon us in baptism. This is the spirit that rushed upon God's chosen King David in our first reading this Sunday. A shepherd like Moses before him, David is also a sign, pointing to the good shepherd and the king to come, Jesus. The Lord is our shepherd, as we sing in the psalm. By his death and resurrection, he has made a path for us through the dark valley of sin and death, leading us to the green pastures of the kingdom of life, the church. In the restful waters of baptism, he refreshes our souls He's anointed our heads with the oil of confirmation and spread the Eucharistic table before us, filling our cups to overflowing. With the blind man, we enter into his house to give God the praise, to renew our vow, I do believe, O Lord. As the scripture tells us, the Lord looks into the heart. Let him find us, as Paul advises in this Sunday's epistle, living as children of light, trying always to learn what is pleasing to our Father. This is Scott Hahn for Breaking the Bread. Breaking the Bread is a production of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you'd like to receive written copies of Dr. Hahn's reflections on the Sunday Mass readings, you can contact us by email at staff at salvationhistory.com or call us at 740-264-9535. That's 740-264-9535. Nine five three five. You know what I really like about that particular gospel where Jesus is healing the blind man and, and spits on the clay and puts that clay on his eyes is the fact that Jesus didn't need to use anything. He didn't even need to say the words, have sight or, you know, open your eyes. He didn't have to do anything. He merely had to think it. And it was done. But yet he goes out of his way to use created things in his miracles. You know, and when there's critics to the church who say, you know, the church is too ritualistic, the church has too many, too much baggage, too much sacramentals, things like that. You know, furniture, whatever. Well, you know, I like to think about this particular gospel passage of Jesus using a created thing to do his work because all creation points us to God and all things were made good because God said so that's I just really like that thought and I really love this particular passage in the gospel for that reason alone well we have a lot of interview to get to with Tarek Saab 
Tarek is a great Catholic speaker, and I think you're going to enjoy his new book, Gut Check, and I want to get to that. So without further ado, let's roll up our sleeves, and let's dive deep and get into the truth with Tarek Saab. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! This school when I sit, even just a little bit, I get hit with the power that made the veil in the temple split. When I submit, fall on the floor and adore. Can't get enough, got to come back for some more. Hey, we've got a problem here. Center every moment in the freak and benefit in this school. Welcome back to the Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and today we're speaking with Tarek Saab once again. It's round two on the podcast. Tarek was a candidate on NBC's The Apprentice season number five. He is the president of T Saab Media Inc. and the co-founder of Lionheart Apparel, a men's clothing line he launched after his debut on The Apprentice. He has been named Kipling's Who's Who among executives and business professionals for 2008. He is a popular Catholic speaker, and his book, entitled Gut Check, Confronting Love, Work, and Manhood in Your 20s, will release March 1st through Spence Publishing. Tarek, welcome back to the podcast. Joe, it's great to be back. Well, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the time that you have given me once again to, uh, to talk about your, your work, your love, your passion, and, and especially your new book, Gut Check. Now, you sent me a copy of this book. And I can't tell you how privileged I was to read it. You know, initially, when I was reading this book, it was just like reading my own story. It was uncanny how similar your your journey was to me. So that really resonated with, with me. And, uh, and it really got me involved into the book. And I think my gut tells me that there's going to be a whole generation of guys just about our age who are going to feel about the same way. Well, you know, Joe, my uh, intent in writing the book... Uh, one thing that was important to me was just making it relatable, uh, relatable to the normal, average guy who goes through the common struggles of living in a, a very modern, secular culture. And, you know, those struggles are broad, but, you know, they are, um, I would say they are uh, viral in a way. I mean, we all go through the challenges of, of lust and, and the challenge of addiction, whether that's to sports or to entertainment or to what have you. And I think those are pretty common and they've been common for centuries, right? Uh, I think, you know, in reading Confessions by Augustine, you know, I, I found that book to be relatable because guys don't change very much, you know, and, uh, you know, I think this book, what I try to do with it is to open up my life, open up my challenges and to bear my soul in a sense so that you know, the, the average guy could relate and hopefully take something from it. You know what, I, when you start the book off, you're describing your college experience. And we, in today's pop culture, we see so many adolescent movies and, and twists on, on that pop culture, on that society, you know, especially college life. It's all about drinking beer. It's all about girls. It's all about adolescence. It's, it's all surface level. And, 
And I could sense from your book that you were trying to find the line. Okay, how much do I describe? And, and how much, you know, what's overboard? And, but what's also being realistic? What's also like wearing my, you know, my life on my sleeve kind of a, a thing? And, and I really appreciated that you, you were accurate in the description of your life at that time, but you, you didn't go overboard in my opinion. But I really, um, I really just got the sense, and what I really liked about this book was you showed and you pointed just how superficial it was and just how in the heart of every man who, who goes through that, they realize for themselves they're not looking for anything deep. They, like We don't even kid ourselves to think that this is deep living, that this is happiness, that this is you know uh, real, that this is we're, we're actually seeking the superficial in our heart of hearts. We, we realize that. Is that. Was that the sense, or, or did I get that wrong? No, I, I think you're right on track. And, you know, I, the, I would say the biggest struggle that I faced in writing the first few chapters was finding the delicate balance between being authentic and being scandalous. And, you know, writing a book, just looking at it in, in the, uh, the, the spiritual sense, I'm very much responsible for the souls of the, the men and women who read this book. And I wanted to be sure that I wasn't in any way um, glamorizing, glorifying, you know, the challenges of college life. And, and uh, you know, that was a balance. I went over and over again in my mind, what is, what is important to keep and what, is, what should I take out? And, uh, you know, I, I make the uh, connection to the movie Braveheart, a movie that I love, a movie that a lot of guys love. And, you know, in the movie Braveheart, I think the violence is necessary to uh, to get the point across, to uh, depict what it was like during that time period. But you know, I don't think that the gratuitous love scene um, when when uh, William Wallace gets married is necessary. I think that could have been taken out altogether. And so that was the the balance I was trying to strike. And you know, as far as your your other question, you know, I think one of the the biggest struggles facing young men is this concept of um, just defining what a good guy is. I think so many men in college today can say, hey, you know, I'm a good guy. I uh, don't do drugs. I, I don't sleep around with women. Um, you know, I, I try to be nice to people. I donate to the Salvation Army Santa. And, and that alone makes that young man uh, a Catholic that, that uh, he thinks in his head that he's living the Christian ideal, when in fact college life and, and what we have accepted as normal living is really twisted. It's, it's a secular mm. paganistic culture. And, you know, going out and drinking with the boys turns into binge drinking, and that leads into uh, lustful hookups, and that leads to condoning potty humor classics like, you know, Old School and, and some of these other movies that we think in our heads oh, it's no big deal. It's just, you know, a funny movie with all these swears and, and gratuitous sexual references, not realizing that, you know, our spiritual lives are being detrimentally affected uh, by these volleys of impurity. So uh, that's what I was trying to depict is that, look, I was thinking all along in my first few years of college that I'm a good guy and, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, this great Christian guy, not realizing, not ever keeping in the forefront of my mind that, you know, I had really fallen so far from my faith just by living the ordinary life. Yeah. Do you, do you worry that you might have painted uh, a picture about that particular college 
as being a party school? And, you know, do you, do you ever worry about, you know, meeting old professors or anybody like that who might get a hold of your book and, and, uh, and what they might think about that? It's funny you should mention that, Joe, because I'm speaking at uh, St. Anselm College. This was the, the college that, you know, I, I went to. I went to two different schools, but the first three years of my college life was at St. Anselm. And, uh, you know, I sent them a galley copy of the book to read. And I, that thought crossed my mind. But, you know, the reality is this, that it doesn't matter what college you go to. Right. There are people who party and they binge drink. It, you could have the, the greatest Catholic school there is. Mm. And, you know, the opening weekend, kids will be puking on lawns. It's just, <laughs> that's college life today. Right. And it's depressing, but it's a reality. And I think if there's something positive that my college can take from this is that in the very opening chapters, what gets me out, the, the kind of the uh, light bulb that goes off is spearheaded, right. one, by a college professor in mm. a humanities lecture, and, and two, by a priest, Father Albert, yeah. who really had a profound impact on me in, in terms of my view of what I thought evil was in the world. And, uh, you know, so the college can really take a lot of credit for uh, helping me rebound from uh, my, my adolescent waywardness. You know, for me, I, I didn't, when I was 17 years old, I joined the Marine Corps. It was um, <clears throat> 1991, and um, the Gulf War was full swing, and, and so I, I, was, uh, I spent my high school career in ROTC, so I was, and my father was in the Army, so I was very much military-minded. I knew I was going to join the military, whether it was before college or after, but I got caught up in the romantic image of going to war, and uh, my best friend at the time had joined the Marine Corps, so I was very much influenced, and I, and I raised my right hand at 17 years old. My mother had to sign me over and everything, <clears throat> and, uh, and I left. I went off to the Marine Corps, and I graduated boot camp number one. I was the company honor man. I had beat out 450 other Marines for that spot. You know, I was the best of the best. And I was full of pride, and I went out into the world, and I quickly crashed and burned. It amazed me. I was my, my bubble was shattered so quickly because I realized that we were just a bunch of kids, and the Marine Corps was not going to be our mom and dad. And as a result, we made so many mistakes. We spent our life you know, waiting for the next binge drinking episode, the next, you know, club, the next party, the next, you know, high. It was just, that was the way of life. And it was, it was so detrimental to the spirit. It was so damaging. But it just got me to think, especially when reading your book, is how quick our society is to send our kids off to the world to be, you know, to, to put them out there, to face the, you know, all these challenges all by themselves and so little equipped for the battle. It just blows me away that it's no wonder that we, we see as much of this behavior as we do. I mean, and then when I read and I was reading through, you know, your episode with, with, um, with the father there and just I started to think about him. I started to think about, okay, what's going on in this guy's mind? He obviously knows what goes on on campus. I mean, these professors aren't, aren't you know, they're not not intelligent the 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 religious on that campus are not not intelligent they 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 know what goes on but it got to me to realize that that because if there if they weren't there there would be nobody to have had that conversation with you 
That's right. You know, and I, I sort of found myself, you know, respecting this gentleman, even though, you know, he, he was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to beat you over the head and say, Tarek, you got to get to church and you got to pray the rosary and you got to do all this. He was working with you and he was, he was trying to work with you. So in that conversation, in, in, in that, uh, narrative i really started to find myself respecting him and and his work and and it's almost like ministry work like he was in the mission field and to to the kids and um i really enjoyed that part and uh, that was sort of a i wasn't really expecting to have that sort of thought process but it really got me to think about that how we how how when i was sent off i i went off into the world thinking i can handle it and realized quickly i didn't have a clue right <laughs> you know and Boy, and when i made the what? when i made those mistakes you know um there wasn't anybody there to be my to be my mentor there wasn't anybody there to be my right. mom and dad so i thought that was a very profound conversation you had yeah it, the the campus that i went to was a benedictine college and the benedictine community their motto is uh, Ora et Labora, work and pray. And so, you know, the Benedictines always have their little niche to sustain themselves, whether that's making beer or running a college campus. And one thing that I always felt was um, kind of the the undercurrent of of, um, the the, the college life, the, the campus community there was that there were these men on campus that cared about my soul. They genuinely cared about my soul and the way that they were going to affect me um, and help me to understand what is most important in life was not by, you know, uh, being disciplinarians, being military-like and saying, you know, you have to go to church, you have to go pray your, pray your rosary, but rather um, enticing me to find truth, beauty, and goodness in, in the way in which they teach and in the way in which they preach and, um, and in the, the general uh, mission of the, the College Humanities Program, which is entitled Portraits of Human Greatness. Mm. What is human greatness? How mm. do you achieve human greatness? And, you know, I think going back to your earlier point about parents sending their kids off into the world, I think one of the greatest things that parents can do for their children is to help them arrive at an answer to the question, what do you really want? Mm. And the real problem is that we send all these 18-year-old kids out in, into the college world and into the military, wherever, and we don't know what it is that we want out of life. People ask, hey, well, what do you want to do? What, what do you want in your life? Well, I want to be a CEO, or, well, I want to be <laughs> a general in the Army. I want to be this or that. I want to make a million dollars. I right. want, you know, a uh, family or whatever. You know, there, there are all these things that we think about, what do we really want? And the problem is, no one ever answers the question this way. They never say, you know what I really want? I want to get to heaven. That's what I want. Mm. And at the end of the day, that's the only answer that we should all give. Everything that we do should be a process of getting to heaven. Why do you want that particular job? Because it's going to help me get to heaven. Why do you want a family with these children? Because they're going to help me get to heaven, and I'm going to help them get to heaven. You know, the opening sentence in the book is that success in life and business begins by focusing on death. And the reason why I put that, the reason why I phrase that line that way is we are all going to die. We are all going to face judgment. And when, when we sit before Christ and he looks back at our lives, he is really going to want to know, did we do everything in our power to get to heaven, to, to be close to him, to return to him? And you know, I think 
the answer today for most people is is no. They they care about themselves. They care about their own pride and ego. You know, the experience that you went through of being tops in in um, in boot camp is something that I went through as well. I was you know tops at work. I was the mm. shining star in the corporate world, and you know I was moving up the ranks very quickly. And it was all pride. It was all ego and really what I was seeking is happiness. I was right. seeking validation. And, um, you know, as you get along further in the book, you realize that, you know, we're insatiable. And, and I never found <laughs> it at work. I never found it anywhere else but in my faith. Well, before we get ahead of ourselves, there's a, there's a couple early points in the book that I really want to talk about. One of the things, other things that I really loved about this book was the style in which you wrote it. The the narratives that you interlaced with um, the dialogue between other people that you interlaced with the narratives was really exciting. I mean, it was engaging. It it wanted me to put to read the next page. It was hard to put it down, and um, and that was really really good. I thought it kept a very good pace. It was um, you were able to say a lot more, and uh, I, I just really thought it was a, a very good style. But we see early on this conversation, and you mark this book with with certain conversations with women, and you and I. have emailed back and forth about that and I think it's a it's a very cool um, part of the book the first one is with OCG girl and how this girl (laughs) comes from this large family and and here you are with your friends and you're all drunk and you're all finding yourselves at this awkward little you know party that you probably wouldn't have been to anyway and and you you see this girl who you thought at the time was your soulmate and uh, and and you finally get to have this talk with her but guess what you know you're you're drunk you can't even think straight and 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 then you're leading up this conversation and you're saying the cliches i mean i saw myself saying this like similar conversation when i was that age and um you know and then you you thought you were going to have a certain outcome and then there was a twist and it didn't come out like you thought let's talk about that for a second yeah o- ocg girl stands for orange cardigan girl and you know in college we always had these names for uh different girls that we like partially because when we first saw them we didn't know their names so we had to come up with something but um ocg girl was this beautiful uh wonderful girl that in my head I had blown up to be, you know, my, my dream girl, my soulmate. And happiness for me was, you know, finding the love of a woman. That's when I was really going to be happy as, as a freshman in college. That's what I was thinking in my head. And, you know, um, I had spent a number of months pursuing her. And when I had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with her, in many ways, she let me down, uh, in that this, (laughs) dream girl that I had concocted in my head uh, was far different than the the woman who she was in real life and that, you know, she didn't want to have a big family. She didn't want um, kind of the the ideals that, that I, she didn't share the same ideals that I had. And really the, the reaction that I came away with was one of sadness, not so much because she had let me down, but more because I felt like I had let her down. My, what I was thinking was, you know, the reason why she did not share the ideals that I had was because there were no guys who she saw that shared her ideals, the ideals that women want. And I, as I was looking at myself figuratively in the mirror during that conversation, I realized that, gosh, here I am, I'm drunk the night before I puked on, on a lawn in front of her. <laughs> and uh, why would she want a guy like me? Why would she share my ideals? I'm, I'm not this right. you know, knight in shining armor. And 
the, the whole purpose of that conversation is man taking responsibility uh, not only for himself but for the people around him and for the women around him. And, you know, I think that one of the reasons why women often let us down in, in terms of their morality and, and in terms of um, just their, their overall spirituality is because we let them down too. And it's, it's kind of a shared, uh, uh, a shared problem in, in a sense. Mm. So that, well, that's OCG. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I actually want to read a bit of it from the book, but, uh, what really caught me off guard was I had to realize my own psychology of how I think on the world. And this is, and this is naive, naive probably, but I always think chivalry, right? Like men, I look at, okay, well, I can understand how men are tempted and sin and, and have all these, you know, sexual lust issues and all this other stuff. But I always sort of grant that women are generally good. <laughs> I don't know why right. I think that. I don't know where it comes from, but it's just in my mind. I always just expect the best of women and the least of men. And and that's sort of kind of how I was approaching the conversation. So when the conversation turned and twisted, I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> you know? You know, and it just sort of like shattered. Like, here you were thinking, oh, this girl is classical. She's not like the rest, you know. She, uh, you know, there's a certain quality about her. And then all of a sudden it turns and it's like you're, it's like that bubble was burst and and, and now it's like it's like the whole attitude changed. It's like what? What are you talking about? And if you don't mind, I'd just like to read a bit there. We start off Wait. with with um, you know you're having this conversation with her, and it's over. How many kids do you want? And you, as a and I did this too. You know, oh, I want many kids. Thinking, oh, it's going to excite the women and get them to like us more. You know, if they they think we want kids, and right. that's sort of where it started. And then you ask her, you're turning around, and you say, you know, you know. Uh, how many kids do you want, basically? And she says, says, are you serious about having all those kids, she asks you, and uh, sounding more inquisitive with each question. Absolutely, don't you? I knew she'd say yes. Heck no, two tops, one boy, one girl. What? I thought. You just said you'd love having a big family. I did. I love my family. But that doesn't mean I want as many kids as my mother. I've seen what it did to her body. I'm not going through that. I mean, that just, like, I wasn't ready for that, you know? I was thinking right. the same thing you were. The, the, the outcome will be she'll want a big family. She'll want a classical nuclear family. The whole, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, uh, right. and, and you could, it totally twisted. I wasn't prepared for that. So I thought that was a, a very interesting thing. And, and then I got the sense that you became a little more aggressive in the conversation. And mm -hmm. you were starting to almost debate her on the issue. Right. And and so, and then sadly, it, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, sadly, that is uh, a conversation I've had with a number of women too. You know, speaking to women that come from families of eight, nine, ten children, especially in Boston with the big Irish families. Yeah. And um, and I'm just blown away to hear that, you know, these women from these big families do not share the same ideals of their parents. And and why is that? Well, I think part part of it is just a a generational thing where. Um, women see themselves a lot differently. They see themselves as, uh, I don't want to say objects, but in some respects, right. men view women as objects, mm -hmm. and women, in turn, want to be pleasing to men. Right. So they kind of go along with the flow. Right. They see that men want beautiful women. They see that when, when women are no longer beautiful, men divorce them. So there's a, a, maybe a, a fear that is not 
at the forefront of their minds, but maybe it's just a psychological fear that, gosh, if I'm not beautiful for my husband, you know, he may leave me in 10 years. And that is a, a sad development in our culture, but it's one that has permeated the younger generations like this OCG girl. Mm. And you know what's the interesting beyond that is I remember in the conversation she was sort of, you know, criticizing you for being the guy who was hooking up with, with others on campus, and she sort of recognized that. But in the end, what happens? She ends up dating the senior who's hooked up with the entire freshman dorm. I mean, <laughs> right. how, that was, you know, just hypocritical, in, you know, and really went further to sort of burst that romantic bubble that of, you know, the classical, you know, chivalrous, you know, and uh, right. women men who have of character and really she's in the end no better than you are at that point right she's settled you right. know she's settled because she knows that the man that she ultimately wants does not exist and that's what is so hurtful to me is knowing that gosh if i had presented myself to her as that man not drunk not the guy puking on lawns maybe she would have changed maybe she would have realized the error of her ways but because i wasn't that man she had no reason whatsoever right. to hold out and to wait out. And, you know, I want to bring up a point that you mentioned earlier in, in terms of the style of the writing. You know, I wrote this book as a first-person narrative, almost like a, a novel in a sense, because of the fact that I wanted the reader to uh, feel like they were a part of the book, to feel like they were a part of the story, and to take away from the story um, their their own you know, kind of the, their own reactions, because I didn't want to put myself in a position, particularly for men in their 20s, I didn't want to kind of get on a pulpit and sound preachy. I wanted men to learn from my experiences in the same way that I learned from them. And uh, hopefully that's a better way of communicating in, in a, a culture that is very much entertainment-driven. And we, we learn through entertainment now. You know, we, we adopt our ideals through the medium of storytelling. And I wanted to use the the story as as the kind of my uh, mode for communication. You know, and it does resonate that way. I, myself, my own experience in this podcast, I have been so blessed to have talked to many people around the world who, you know, when every time I talk about my own addiction and, and, and sexuality and lust and, you know, guys are the right there. I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't being talked about in our society. And when you do, boy, you really resonate quick. And these men are going to read this book, and they're going to feel the same way. They're going to feel like I did when I read it, in that this is their story. They did these things, too. They felt the same way. They, they said the same things. They went through the same experiences. It might not have been the corporate world. It could have, might not have been in the, in the college campus, but... It's really basically the same model, and and that really and you started to lay these points with these narratives early on that you can't blame OCG girl for her issues as much as you need to blame the men. Where are the men? You know right. why aren't men stepping up? You know, and in, in Genesis chapter three nails it early on when God comes to judge them and says, you know, you woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And that, you know, has we've seen that throughout history. And here it is again. You know, her desire is to please a man. You know, so she settles for far less than what she she deserves. 
you know, and it, it's because she's she's bought the hook, line, and sinker lie of, of of our society that they need to be objects because we treat them like that. That's right. Women want to be loved, protected, nurtured. They they desire those things from men, and when when men basically come out through their actions and say the only way we're going to give this to you, this love and affection and nurture and, and attention is through the way that you look or through you know, your career or whatever, they are going to mold themselves to make them that person. You know, it's, you know, I see it now even in, in being married, a, a newlywed. My wife, when we have company over, my goodness, she will go out of her way to make sure that every single person is totally happy and comfortable and they, they have something to drink and they have something to eat. And, you know, she, she really plays the part of hostess incredibly well. And I think there's something innate to, um, to the, the female that really desires to make people happy in that way. And, um, and I, I think that we see that in relationships today too. And I, I mean, that's why we see little, 13, 14 year old girls walking down the street with thongs hanging out of their pants because they think, well, I have to do that for guys to to care about me. Right. And that's just, it's sad. It's sad how we got there, but it ain't going to change until men change. That's right. You know, it's just the, 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 the argue over over abortion. Abortion will go away when men stand up and become men. That's right. You know, when we start caring for the women who are in our, in our protection, then then we'll see that change. And until then, it's just going to get worse. But you know what I liked is after this episode of, of OCG Girl, you, you start talking about in the very next chapter about how you went to Mass and Mass became a social event and and you were there and everybody was there to, to people watch. And, and that really, you know, was very revealing, you know, because I myself, I, I've been to church. I grew up in a, in a Church of Christ. And, and I remember in boot camp even, uh, on Sunday, they let you go to to worship, and, and they had they offered all kinds, all varieties. I wasn't Catholic, but I went to both Protestant and Catholic services that day because I just didn't want to be in the in, in the dorm. But it, I sat in the back, and and I, I just remember being there and participating. But me, even though it was just a bunch of guys in the room, it was still all about social hour because right. it was you know. And so, although it's not the same sense you know in what you experienced, but I could really relate to that how how surface level and how, you know, a lot of society looks on religious, especially Catholics, and they see, this is, this is what they're seeing. And I loved how you spoke candidly about that and how mm-hmm. this is not reality. This is not truth. This is just what you, you know, were wanting at the time. This is just what you were thinking at the time. This is just your outlook. So I, I really appreciated your, your candidness uh, of that episode. Yeah, you know, and, and I think remembering back on that experience, you know, when you go to church and the people around you are very pious and they're reverent and they're there because they want to communicate with God, that has an effect on you. That changes um, your outlook in being there. You want to kind of follow in kind, and, and um, we are very communal in the way that we worship. And yet when people... When you go to that same environment and people are talking and they're whispering, they, they dress up and they, you know, they're, they're looking good, not for God. They're looking good for the people around them. That also has an impact. And, you know, in that episode in the book, I say I, I felt hypocritical going to church because, you know, I got nothing out of it. I wasn't there to, to worship. I was there to people watch. And, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, a mobster bathroom. 
baptizing his child. You think, well, why are you baptizing your child and you're killing people, you know, during the week? What's the point right. there, you know? And, and that's really the, the, uh, the hypocrisy that I felt I, I was immersed in at that time. Right. You know, and the Godfather, we're talking about Godfather here. It's funny because my old pastor, priest from uh, New Hampshire up in uh, St. Joseph's in Belmont, New Hampshire, he would preach on that. <laughs> he, he would actually bring that up and, 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 and talk about that. You know, we, and it's funny, I was just watching the Godfather on, uh, I can't remember what channel it was on, but they were playing it a lot lately. And, and coming to the, those scenes, you know, the, his first communion, the baptism scenes, and and you know, in the back, you know, he's at he's at the baptism, you know, celebrating the sacrament, and at the same time, he's having all these other people killed, you know, right. uh, you know, and that's so that was a great analogy that you that you laid out there for me, and again, I really appreciated the candidacy of that. And then we get into the discussion, this, this professor who, who talks of Aristotle. And this is where the book sort of went into high gear for me because I was really digging the conversation. I didn't really want you to move on, to be honest. I wanted you to, to really <laughs> recite what the, the professor was saying because I've had so many discussions. And the, the issue over – I mean, there's a couple of big issues for me that I feel extremely passionate about. And it, pro-life is, is one of them. The issue over life and and our sexuality and um, and then creation versus evolution is another hot hot button item for me and so you go into both of these issues you know back to back and so it was a, it was a pretty heavy charged uh, point of the book but in this section over Aristotle what I really love this professor what he did and, and it was amazing is he was able to talk about what is the point. What is the point in life? What is our purpose? And I, he uses the pin as an analogy, and then he right. talks about okay, what's the what's the purpose of uh, of of humans? What are the purpose of people? And this is the same argument that that my wife and I used when we gave lectures to uh, engaged couples up in New Hampshire. You know, when they could, when we sit there and we talk about theology of the body. People don't understand why contraception is, is wrong. People don't understand why uh, sex outside of marriage is wrong. But when you can start to talk about, well, what is the purpose of our bodies? What is the purpose of our, our, our very existence? You know, now you can start to understand that when you use something contrary to its purpose, it's wrong. It's just wrong. You know, you, you don't use a pen as a hammer. You know, you'll right. break the pen. If you use the body inappropriately, you break the body. And we see that with disease right. and immoral living and, and everything else. And I think that this was such a simple way to to uh, describe that and to talk about that, that it was, you know, profound. You didn't have to go into, you know, huge depth to really get people to understand it. It was just very simple, very straightforward, and just very easy to understand. Now that scene, the location of that occurred in a, a humanities lecture, lecture hall, about 600 students uh, It's part of the core curriculum at St. Anselm. And something else I put in there very specifically in that chapter, um, because I think it's important, is the fact that it was February, half the place was empty, and the, the way I described the, the other people in the audience is, you know, uh, heads buried beneath hats and hoodies. <laughs> Um, you know, you have some incessant note takers who, you know, always write everything down, but they don't really understand everything. And you have people who are, who are there just to say that they were there falling asleep. And I think that contrast versus, you know, this unbelievable lecture, this, this 
uh, professor is giving. It's like the truth about life, what happiness is. You know, the meaning of life right. is being delivered to us in right. a fantastic lecture, right. and nobody it right. cares. And we nobody miss it. <laughs> we were absent <laughs> that day of class. Right? Oh, man. So it's, it's uh, I think, a an example of what happens in the world at large. People are apathetic. They don't want to know the truth. That's right. the problem is that the truth is there. And it's been there for a long time, and we're talking Aristotle. This is this predates Christ. Right. You know, the the, the truth is is uh, you know there to be had and absorbed and, and learned, and uh, and people just don't care. Mm-hmm. They just uh, you know they want to party, they want entertainment, and and that's about it. I think that's half the problem is that you know once you you know as you say, I mean once you learn what, what our purpose is. It's right. pretty obvious. It's pretty logical. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But people just don't want to know. Well, there you have it. That's part one of the Tarek Saab gut check interview. Stick around because there's a lot more to come. You know, this week, like I said, has been extremely busy. So I do appreciate your patience. You know, hanging out with me while, while you wait for the next podcast. It's been over a week now, so I do appreciate your patience. Please stop by the blog, www.catholichack.com, and check me out. You can reach me. You can get a hold of me through email. You can get a hold of me on Facebook, on Twitter. You can leave a review right there, or post a comment right there on the various podcasts. You will also see some new pictures of listeners wearing Catholic Hack t-shirts, How cool is that? Yvonne and Marla both sent in pictures this week uh, for the blog, and I'm going to be posting those. My sister sent a picture of her family wearing them last week, and a listener sent in a picture of the Incredibles wearing Catholic hack t-shirts. How cool is that? So, stop by the blog and pick up a Catholic hack t-shirt or mug and send me a picture. I really want to see that. That would be very, very cool. Thank you very much for the great support that you have you have given me, especially on iTunes. You leaving me a review in iTunes has really just been a wonderful, wonderful gift that you have given me. Uh, I think last count I had 54 reviews, and I've made it to about halfway up the uh, the second page of the featured podcast list on the iTunes store under Christian Podcast. That is pretty all right in my book because we got people finding this podcast who weren't even looking, and that's evangelization. So please do consider leaving a new review today if you have not already done so. I want you to pick up a copy of Gut Check, Tarek's new book that we're discussing in this podcast, off of my blog at www.catholichack.com. Right at the top there is a banner that you can click on, and that will take you to buygutcheck.com. But picking it up off of my blog really helps me out, if you know what I mean. So do that today. Pick up Gut Check by Tarek Saab. So until next time, may God richly bless you. SQPN, the best in Catholic podcasting.